0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Animal Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Emily Anthes, one of the channel's hosts. Today, we'll be talking to Matthew Gavin Frank about his new book, Flight of the Diamond Smugglers, a tale of pigeons, obsession, and greed along coastal South Africa, which is about how carrier pigeons are used by diamond smuggling rings. Matt is also the author of the nonfiction books, The Mad Feast, An Ecstatic Tour Through America's Food, Preparing the Ghost, an essay concerning the giant squid and its first photographer, Pot Farm, and Barolo. He is a professor of creative writing in the MFA program at Northern Michigan University, where he is also the nonfiction hybrids editor of the literary magazine Passages North. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. It's great to have you here. And I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and and your background.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, sure. I I was born and raised in Chicago. Uh, My uh, mother was um, a seventh and eighth grade English teacher in the city, and uh, she just kind of introduced um, me to uh, a book obsession from a very early age. Um, she read to me uh, kind of incessantly. Um, and I became a very, uh, I became a voracious reader um, ever since I was a kid. Um, eventually, uh, uh, growing up, I um, I never expected to, uh, to write books myself. I never expected to teach creative writing. In fact, I uh, got my first job um, I was washing dishes in a fast food chicken shack uh, on the outskirts of Chicago at age 11 and just kind of stayed in the restaurant industry for about um, 20 years uh, after that and thought that that's what I was going to be doing with my life, uh, working in restaurants. Um, a lot of the the creativity um, that I, I feel as if I, I pull from sometimes um, in my uh, writing um, kind of stems back to things I learned in the fine dining restaurant kitchens when I kind of uh, uh, got out of the fast food chicken shacks and and made it in the fine dining world, I suppose, um, where we just got really creative with food and we would challenge ourselves as chefs to take seemingly dissimilar ingredients and uh, try and manipulate them in a certain way um, with temperature and texture or two or three bridge ingredients, perhaps, um, in order to create this illusion of unity on the plate. Uh, and I oftentimes um, kind of pull from that in my work, pigeons and diamond smuggling, for instance. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm just kind of interested in, in how these seemingly dissimilar things tend to work together and, and form a unity. Um, eventually, I got out of restaurant kitchens. I uh, there was this moment of crisis where, after I was working nineteen hour shifts in the fine dining restaurant world, I would go out with the kitchen crew and we would have a few drinks and in the bar, uh, we would sometimes ask each other what we like to do in our very minimal spare time outside of the the restaurant kitchen and I remember I told this this group of chefs well i I kind of like writing poetry and lyrical essays and it was a fabulous conversation killer. So <laughs> I, I just was kind sort of hungering almost for a, a writerly community and folks with whom to, to chat about such things. And uh, it, at that point, um, through some serpentine channels, I, I found my way back into uh, uh, academia and um, got a graduate degree in creative writing and, and just kind of never looked back.
0: Wow, that sounds like quite quite a journey you've been on
1: yeah it's been fun I mean part of me misses the the energy and the dynamism of the restaurant kitchen I I spend most of my my life behind a a computer screen now either uh teaching or writing or revising uh, or doing virtual events and things like this um and so I kind of miss uh in a way uh just the 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 physical activity that working in a a restaurant kitchen demands. But um, I'm just way too old for that now. I don't think my body can handle it. (laughs) So you talk about this a
0: little bit in the opening pages of your book, but how did you stumble upon this particular story and what made you think there's, there's a book here?
1: Yeah. um, So uh, my, 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 my partner is South African. And uh, I mean, not to provide too much information, I suppose, but um, she and I had quite a bit of bad luck um, when it came to conceiving a child. Um, we we suffered a, a, a number of miscarriages. And um, after our sixth one, uh, we kind of swore off trying again. We just felt we couldn't handle it. And um, you know, her entire family still lives in South Africa, and she basically just began saying, "I need to go home. I need to be around my family. I need to grieve with, with my intimates." And so we we went we went back to South Africa, and we actually um, conducted this this kind of strange funeral ceremony of sorts um, for um, our final miscarriage, but all of our uh, uh, attempts, I suppose. And in turn, this this phase in our life of thinking of ourselves as would be parents um, at a place called the Big Hole in Kimberley, South Africa. And it's this just gaping open pit, uh, defunct diamond mine um, that is now a tourist attraction, Um, a very strange tourist attraction, or like the roadside attraction variety in Kimberley, South Africa. And when um, my partner was a child, she and her family. Uh, would always spend time there, and she had such pleasant memories there, which is why it was her choice to conduct this kind of funeral ceremony of sorts there, um, this place of childhood comfort. Um, so we went there, and I just became really interested in uh, – I mean, it began with reading – it was this mundane. It began with reading a few placards at the uh, the Kimberly Big Hole Mine Museum, And I became interested in uh, the history of diamond mining in the area. Um, And uh, I just kind of began doing a little bit of cursory research. And then I found out that a different portion of South Africa and South Africa's West Coast, which is uh, known today as the Diamond Coast, um, uh, it actually um, was an area that was officially closed off to the public for like the better part of 80 years um, since 1925, it was um, it was colloquially known as the Forbidden Zone um, in South Africa because De Beers closed it off, and uh, it was basically um, a series of mining towns along the South African coast. Nobody who didn't labor for De Beers, uh, or you know, could enter. Um, you had to work for the company. Um, but beginning in 2007, um, De Beers began withdrawing some of their interests there, and some of the doors to these previously closed-off towns um, began opening to the public for the very first time. And, uh, you know, I was, ever since I was a kid, I, I was always attracted to forbidden places. Um, you know, I got I got arrested for trespassing numerous times and things. And so I wanted to see what was, since 1925, a forbidden zone. Um, I just became interested in uh the everyday machinations and just kind of this this uh uh local culture born of isolation um and i i wanted to bear witness to it and i i ended up going there to one of the towns that um was thrown open to the public not without restrictions um i had to go through a series of background checks uh and things in order to get in um but once i was in i started talking to some of the locals and because this was a community that was isolated from, you know, the remainder of the the public for for so long, folks were just incredibly eager to uh, talk with me and chat with me. And um, in a bar late one night over uh, a number of brandies, um, this one guy, this former diamond diver, who admitted he was part of a, a diamond smuggling ring for a spell, started telling me, about the ways in which um, uh, folks would smuggle diamonds, all of these ingenious methods, um, one of which was folks would smuggle trained carrier pigeons onto the mines in their lunchboxes and uh, affix diamonds to little bags attached to these pigeons' feet and send them home um, to their uh, spouses and families who would unpack the diamonds and, and make their fortunes. and um, I thought to myself, how can't there be a book there? (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, I'm a natural obsessive. And so I just latched onto this and and tumbled down the rabbit hole. And and the book that's out now is a a pretty lean 210 pages, but um, I'm kind of reluctant to admit this, Emily, but in its largest version, it was upwards of a thousand pages. Um, could you imagine? I was I was so obsessed uh, with with this subject matter. Um, it, it just kind of kept growing and growing and growing. And then, uh, of course, I had to uh, cut it down quite a bit to make it somewhat palatable and and dynamic.
0: <laughs> well, it's definitely dynamic. It's just an incredibly gripping read. And I'm definitely going to come back in one minute to the pigeons. Um, but before we get to that, can you give us some sense of the scale of Sort of the smuggling that's happening. I mean, obviously, you have these two things that are happening simultaneously. There's this legal diamond mining industry, but then, sort of in the background, there's also these sophisticated smuggling operations, right?
1: Uh, Incredibly sophisticated. And um, with regard to degree, um, there were folks who told me when I was there on the ground um, that everybody, Um, who uh, um, is is a resident of these particular towns is involved in some way or another um, in the ancillary and quote-unquote illicit um, uh, sub-industry of diamond smuggling. Um, And that includes not only um, the laborers and the miners uh, working in in the pit mines uh, in the area for De Beers, um, but that includes security officials. That includes members of the police force. Uh, that includes um, uh, folks in the towns who hold civic positions. Um, in the town of Port Nolloth, South Africa, for instance, um, one former uh, security uh, head of security for De Beers, who I interviewed, um, claimed that every single mayor in Port Nolloth's history since 1925 was also a diamond smuggler, was somehow involved in diamond smuggling. Um, and so it's 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 pretty much the way things run there. Uh, of course, um, De Beers headquarters proper um, out in England uh, doesn't sanction this uh, necessarily. Um, they're, they're aware of it and, and they try and uh, stifle it. Um, but the very same people who attempt to stifle it, oftentimes violently, um, Tend to be involved uh, and have their their own little hustles going on 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 the side too, so it's it's essentially a a way of life there though it's it's kind of this clandestine way of life that um, folks don't necessarily talk about that openly but um, uh, surprisingly, many did with me
0: wow, yeah, it is impressive what you've been able to get on the record, so when it comes to the pigeons can you sort of walk us through the nitty gritty? How does this work exactly? If you have a pigeon and you want to have a smuggled diamond, how do you make that happen?
1: Yeah. So, um, there, uh, there, I mean, pigeons, um, have this natural homing instinct, uh, of course, um, carrier pigeons and so, and homing pigeons, which is why we call them homing pigeons. Um, and, but I mean, the, uh, the reasons why they home and the ways in which they're able to find their ways home still, for the most part, remain a mystery to us. Um, and scientists have conducted numerous experiments with regard to this and there are numerous theories. Um, and, uh, but they can't seem to boil it down to a singularity or even a comfortable, um, plurality, uh, of reasons as to why pigeons can and do home. Um, many of the, uh, folks who use the pigeons to smuggle diamonds, uh, they, um, kind of build these uh, makeshift coops, uh, um, in their yards. And so, uh, I I was talking to um, a young uh, uh, diamond miner there who was telling me about how he trained his pigeons. And so essentially like you, I mean, to go through the nitty gritty and the machinations of it, um, he built a coop uh, and he kind of defined a smaller space within the coop with a little bit of chicken wire. um, And he put some pigeon feed uh, into the coop and kept the pigeon uh, in the coop, like trapped it in, in the coop, put like a little bit of chicken wire over the small uh, entry and exit hole um, and trapped the pigeon in the coop for about five weeks or so. Um, so the pigeon just kind of gets used to that space and used to the parameters of that space and knows that that's where its food is. Um, at the end of five weeks, uh, he told me he took the bird um, out of uh, the coop and began this process of allowing it to just kind of wander around and map out the immediate area, the immediate neighborhood, so to speak. Um, And it would always start like flying, you know, coming back to the home coop um, after uh, a few minutes of exploration um, because it was its place of comfort, its place of safety and where it ate. And so uh, after it mapped out uh, the better part of the neighborhood, um and that uh basically took um like a, about a square mile of the neighborhood the pigeon would have had that mapped out after let's say a couple of weeks uh and then he began taking uh, the pigeon further out in every direction um north south east and west uh so the pigeon can find the way back to its coop or its dovecote um from all directions um would take it out two miles one week, five miles the next in all directions, then 10. Then sometimes, um, if folks had the means to do so, 50. Uh, and the pigeon would invariably find its way back to the home coop. Um, to smuggle the pigeon into the mine... Uh, you know, folks would do it in various ways. Um, folks would, uh, line their clothes with lead sometimes, um, which would, uh, kind of, um, block, uh, a, an x-ray signal because, um, De Beers has x-ray machines, um, and folks are x-rayed every time they enter and exit the mine. Um, and if you line your clothes with lead, that sometimes uh, blocks uh, the image a bit. So folks would line their clothes with lead and sneak a pigeon in uh, to the mine in the folds of their clothing. They would sneak a pigeon in in um, a lead-lined lunchbox uh, and, and things like that. Um, De Beer's uh, eventually um, was prohibited from X-raying folks. Uh, every day because it was a human rights violation to expose folks to that much radiation. Yeah, yeah. so a lot of the miners would receive dummy scans. Uh, So there were a couple of X-ray machines and one would administer a real X-ray and one would administer a placebo, Um, but the machine would light up and make the same exact sound, um, whether you were getting a dummy scan or an actual scan. So folks never knew whether they were really being x-rayed or not. And so they would risk it um, and oftentimes succeed in sneaking the birds into the mine. And if they would dig up some rough diamonds, they oftentimes would have these little makeshift bags, um, sewn of of hide, um, and tie the little diamonds into those bags, attach them to the pigeon's feet or to these um, areas beneath the pigeon's wings, and, and send them into the air to fly home.
0: But as you point out, the pigeons, though they're very good flyers and have this incredible homing instinct, sometimes the diamonds themselves interfere with their ability to find their way back home. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Um, And so if a a pigeon, if a carrier pigeon is overloaded with cargo, uh, a carrier pigeon can falter and it's just kind of natural GPS, uh, I I guess, can... um, uh, it, it can it can be messed with. And so uh, when folks began affixing too many diamonds to the birds, um, the pigeons became exhausted. Uh, they were overloaded. They couldn't find their ways home any longer. And so they began to falter, and they started landing at random along the beaches of these towns of the Diamond Coast of South Africa. And, of course, when diamond-bearing birds start landing at random along the beaches of the Diamond Coast, folks get wind of this. And so um, De Beers officials, um, you know, caught wind of it. And they long ago infiltrated local governments there. And so they have folks working in the local governments who are doing the bidding of the corporation. And so the local governments um, received these edicts from De Beers uh, making them, um, or compelling them to declare it illegal to raise pigeons in the area. And so, um, in fact, in, in 1998, um, there was a local lawmaker in, uh, um, Alexander Bay, South Africa, right on the Namibian border, who made it illegal, uh, in Alexander Bay to not shoot or kill a pigeon on site should one have the means to do so.
0: So, um, how do they possibly enforce that?
1: The jury is out. Uh, <laughs> I'm guessing if um, somebody working for the diamond conglomerates there, whether it was De Beers or Transhex or Alex Corr, saw spotted somebody spotting a pigeon, and that person had a, a gun or a rock or perhaps just you know, strong-looking hands and didn't go after the bird, Um, perhaps that security official would detain that person and question them for not killing that pigeon and and letting it get away. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, so that was one of the aspects of the book that I found really fascinating was the way in which this practice has made sort of anyone who might have any affiliation with pigeons sort of suspicious um, to the government and, and to De Beers. Are there other ways that De Beers and authorities have tried to crack down on this practice? Oh my
1: goodness. Yeah. It's pretty multifaceted and pretty violent. Um, so um, one such method uh, is, is that um, there are kind of independent contractors who are working indirectly for De Beers. Um, you know, it's it's very nudge nudge, wink wink. When I would interview these security officials who were working directly for De Beers, when they would talk to me about this, um, because De Beers doesn't officially sanction the use of independently contracted anti pigeon militias um, in the area, but they do exist. Um, so they they seem kind of vigilante, but they do labor indirectly for the corporation. And these anti-pigeon militias uh, are contracted by um, security officials who work directly for the De Beers mines um, to oftentimes go on these nighttime stealth runs. Uh, Usually, um, a disproportionate number of these anti-pigeon militias, and of course they're heavily armed, um, are driving like these open-topped land rovers. And so they just kind of, in these open-topped land rovers, they randomly patrol uh, the streets of um, these towns and enter people's property. And on the lookout for, like in the middle of the night, um, on the lookout for pigeon coops. And if they find them, they round up the pigeons, they kidnap these pigeons, they take them to an isolated spot out on the beach. um, And... Uh, I actually rode in the book. I, I rode along with one of these anti pigeon militias. Um, I was going to um, ask
0: you about that. Yeah, it
1: was part of the research process. It was it was pretty harrowing and pretty disturbing. Um, but yeah, they they kind of keep these birds in these isolated areas out on in, in the beach in in cages, and when they have enough birds rounded up in order to entertain themselves, this one particular anti pigeon militia that I rode with. Um, would kind of conduct these pigeon shooting contests there, there on the beach. Um, and, uh, and I was there for that as well. Um, they're also charged with reporting uh, the folks who are keeping these pigeons to uh, the De Beers security officials. And um, these people are oftentimes punished in various ways Um, sometimes, uh, they're just let go and kicked out of the town. Um, but sometimes if their services are needed, uh, they're retained, but, um, oftentimes they're retained after enduring some kind of physical punishment. Um, anything from a beating to, um, people having their fingers chopped off, um, and things, uh, having their arms broken, uh, people have actually been, been killed for such an infraction in the past.
0: Is that sort of corporal punishment legal in this context or is this all sort of happening outside of the eyes of of law enforcement?
1: Well, that's the that's the thing. Um, You know, traditional South African legality, um, like what is legal in South Africa and what is permitted um, in these previously closed off diamond mining towns are, are two very different things. Um, And so, no, that is not legal, um, according to South African law. And um, that is not an official policy that is sanctioned and backed by De Beers proper. Um, Is De Beers proper aware that these practices are going on? Um, Based on the folks to whom I spoke in these towns? Most likely. Uh, But they don't officially sanction it and they deny knowledge of it. but again, um, these towns have kind of grown their own culture and grown their own version of law enforcement that still holds sway within the confines of the town, um, that is oftentimes at odds with, with, um, the wider South African, uh, uh, uh legal system and things. It's uh, what goes on within that town, um, basically, uh, uh has, has very little to do um, they, they just don't care about South African law the police force there doesn't necessarily care about South African law in fact um, when de Beers felt that the local police force um, in these particular areas um, weren't being harsh enough as far as punishment um, went and this this is historically this is back in um uh, like the nineteen fifties and sixties, um, and it never really went away. Um, De Beers basically was allowed to create their own police force, so it was a police, it was a corporate police force, a police force working not for South Africa um, necessarily, and not for the citizens, but they were working for the corporation. And in these towns, they oftentimes were allowed to enact these sorts of punishments with impunity um not only with impunity but with encouragement
0: so do we see more conventional style punishments like do people go to prison for this type of smuggling or is it all happening sort of outside of the the formal legal system
1: a lot of it is still happening outside of the formal legal system um uh, these days, um, because De Beers um, is, or has withdrawn um, a lot of their interest there, um, I mean they're still there. They, I mean the De Beers Corporation and the De Beers mines are still there. Um, but uh, beginning in 2007, De Beers deemed uh, a lot of the area to be um, overmined. Uh, I mean, there's still like a ton of diamonds to be mined there, but um, given what it was like in the past, uh, they felt it wasn't worth their while to maintain um, such a a large workforce, I guess. And so when they began to withdraw some of their interest there in 2007, and then therefore these previously closed off towns began opening their doors to the public for the first time, with um, that door opening... Um More conventional sorts of punishments, for instance, um began slowly creeping into the social fabric there um but they're still kind of outweighed uh even today um by by this history of, of just kind of uh um, you know the, the the town's own cultural uh ways of enforcing the law hmm
0: interesting so you know, despite all these efforts at crackdowns and it sounds like some of them have been somewhat effective, but it also sounds like a lot of smugglers have been able to evade these sorts of actions and that pigeon-based diamond smuggling, for, for lack of a better term, sort of continues to be a popular pursuit. Is that right?
1: It is, yeah. Um, I mean, there's uh, a lot of... Um, corporate exploitation uh in, in the area as one might imagine. Um uh folks uh making horrible wages and working long hours um uh while De Beers um uh, you know gets rich uh off of um off of off of this particular land. And uh I was speaking to a diamond diver for instance. Um who uh, is not even allowed to um, comb through the slurry and uh, the seafloor of the area because De Beers owns all of the underwater mineral rights. And huh. so, for instance, if a diamond diver uh, is found, like just digging through the seafloor there, and he's caught by, you know, um, a security official on a De Beers marine rig for instance, um, because De Beers is allowed to dig into the seafloor for sea di- for diamonds that have embedded themselves in the seafloor. Um, but if this person is caught, um, he could be uh, punished as well. And so this this particular diamond diver, he he basically told me that um, De Beers has this stranglehold on these communities. They, they keep them in poverty. They don't allow um, diamond divers, for instance, to make money off of their own land uh because de beers you know owns all of it and so he's basically like the only way we can get paid and make a living and perhaps get out of um this kind of indentured servitude to the corporation is to smuggle uh so it's it's a morality issue in a lot of ways i mean folks are, are forced to do this uh in, in oftentimes in order to live.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really, really difficult for a lot of the the local populations. You mentioned that, um, you know, pigeons were a popular method, but that they weren't the only method of smuggling. What are the other approaches that, that people tend to take?
1: Oh, um, so, um, Secreting the diamonds uh, into the body um, is, is what I mean, swallowing diamonds um, is, is, is a, you know, one way. Um, I, I'm not going to get too graphic for the sake of the podcast, but, you That's know. That's fine. <laughs> you can imagine. Um, and uh, then, of course, the um, Beers, in response to that, Uh, Long ago, I mean, um, back in, uh, you know, the early 1900s, um, instituted a stripping clause that never fully went away. So if somebody was suspected of smuggling diamonds, um, they would be strip searched and invasively searched. Um, De Beers made it a policy to, because of this, to randomly give workers after a shift Uh, liquid suppositories Um, and then they would keep them there until they evacuated their systems uh, just in case. Uh, So this, I mean, this was another way um, of of the Beers trying to, I remember speaking to a security guard and he said with every innovation of the the diamond smuggler, um, the corporation has to come up with a new control and oftentimes the controls were atrocious. Um, Folks, uh, oftentimes, um, folks were caught sneaking diamonds out, um, in the sockets behind their glass eyes. Uh folks were, yeah, fo- folks were caught, um, uh, uh, self-mutilating, um, cutting open a portion of their arms and, um, putting diamonds into the wound and then sewing them up. And oftentimes, um because you you are working in close quarters with other folks, oftentimes diamond security would see the wound um, and uh, they wouldn't examine it because of um, oftentimes scares, uh, AIDS scares. And so these um, folks were taken to uh, a local hospital um, to have their wound tended to, but oftentimes um, the folks working at the hospital were in on the diamond smuggling plan with that very diamond miner who um, secreted the diamonds out in that wound. And so the person working at the hospital would remove the diamonds, sell it on the black market, and and, and split some of the uh, uh, proceeds with, with the diamond miner. Um, uh, folks would um, hollow out these steel bolts and, um, uh, to uh, because you find all of this equipment um, on the mine itself. and so folks would use the equipment found on the mine itself so they wouldn't necessarily have to smuggle anything in from the outside. And so um, there were these um, steel bolts that were used for some of uh, the diamond mining equipment. And uh, folks who would work in some of the workshops there would hollow out these steel bolts, pack these steel bolts with uh, diamonds, seal them off, And then using some um, of the other equipment on the diamond mine, um, you know, uh, wood scrap and things like that, they would build these makeshift crossbows and they would shoot these diamond-packed steel bolts out of the diamond mine, over the fences, um, deep into the Namaqualand desert. Uh, And then after the shift, when they left um, the mine property itself, um, they would uh, calculate the trajectory and go search the desert out there for that bolt that was packed with diamonds. Um, so uh, those are a few other methods. There were um, newer methods and more ingenious methods, apparently, uh, but everybody unequivocally refused to tell me about those. Um, huh. because Yeah. They didn't, they didn't want me knowing about the new methods um, and things, but uh, these methods are still being used but there are other, and these are like known now, um, but there are others that um, remain unknown uh, and untold to me.
0: That's fascinating. So putting the, the smuggling itself aside, I mean, you also mentioned how taxing and difficult just the legitimate work of, of mining these diamonds can be and the shortened life expectancy of these workers. I mean, what sorts of dangers and, and hazards do they face?
1: Yeah. Um and so I mean like like any miner um folks are are breathing in um you know uh uh diamond dust and dirt and slurry uh and things. Um the the mines themselves are just so incredibly um tough to navigate for the human body. Uh they oftentimes resemble um these I mean, I've described them as, as these hellish, gaping, um, part underground, um, part, uh, open topped, uh, pit, uh, versions of, of, of a game of shoots and ladders. There's all of these, um, just, uh, uh, these various levels of, of dirt, these arroyos of dirt. And it looks just like this vast heaving crater, um, that has all of these, uh, uh, makeshift levels to it that folks navigate by rope and ladder and uh yeah I, I i i remember um one person described uh the the diamond mine as 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 being uh just a world of of dust and drought and dysentery and flies and disease and despair and um and and Folks are just terribly, terribly overworked, um, and uh, yeah, the the average lifespan of a, of a of a diamond miner is is thirty some odd years old. It's it's just incredibly tough work. Um, even though De Beers doesn't necessarily uh, sanction this, um, many of the folks who labor in the diamond pits um, are also underage. And so um, the, it, it takes a toll on on their bodies as well.
0: So you mentioned how these towns have started to open up a bit and how they've evolved over time. What do you think the, the future of these towns is? Is the diamond mining industry starting to loosen its grip at all? Do you think things are changing? What's, what are the next years and decades look like?
1: Well, um, is because and um, they they got tired of their image as this kind of tyrannical monopoly. Um, they sold a lot of their market shares to this uh, this this appropriately named um company called anglo american um and uh, they um they still i mean um, they still have a, a a stranglehold on the region um they they very much do, but given that the beers began withdrawing a little bit in, in 2007 and then um, accelerating it in 2009 um, a lot of uh, the residents, um, it was a double-edged sword um, as you can imagine. So a lot of the residents were freed from their indentured servitude to de beers, but that freeing also resulted in them being laid off and, um, having no opportunity in this town that generations of their family members lived in, laboring for de Beers um, before them, and so there's there's just nothing there in the Diamond Coast for them anymore. So it's compelled a lot of the residents there into this this forced exodus into into other parts of South Africa, um, you know, onto the couches of, of dif- distant family members and friends into other possible uh, occupations. Um, De Beers, of course, you know, did nothing to help these residents find future housing or alternative work. Um, But a lot of folks, because this is all they've known and all their families have known for generations, um, they've, they've chosen to stay and um, are trying to repurpose Um, some of the old mining buildings uh, and and things. So there's a proposal in the town of Kleinsia, South Africa, for instance, um, to turn a couple of the abandoned pit mines into hazardous waste dumps um, in order to make money that way. Um, There is a proposal to turn um, one of the old migrant worker dorms into a prison. Uh, A a local uh, diamond diver who in order to be a diamond diver, one might imagine he had to be a decent swimmer. Um, And so uh, back in the day, you know, De Beers built schools um, in these towns and trucked in luxuries for um, all of these folks, provided housing and furniture. And so these schools, um, even though they're defunct, still exist. And this one diamond diver, in order to make money, has taken to um, offering swimming lessons uh, to some of the children in in, in town, in uh, one of the old uh, and unheated swimming pools in one of uh, the the defunct schools in the area, and so there are um, folks who are, are managing to survive there. Uh, there there are even folks talking about opening opening up guest houses um, in the old migrant worker dorms and things like that. But um, it's it's not the sort of place that would. Uh, Attract your traditional tourists, so um, a lot of these ideas aren't necessarily uh, gaining gaining a foothold. But. So, do you
0: feel hopeful about the future of this region, or is it too too soon to say?
1: It's it's too it's too soon to say. Um, I I think it would be disingenuous for for me to claim I I guess just a, a blanket hopefulness or a blanket hopelessness, right? Uh, right. I, I, it feels very liminal uh, right now, um, neither here nor there. Now, um, if, if things persisted the way they were persisting with the De Beers stranglehold, um, you know, I mean, nothing, nothing would change. Um, you know, the, the towns would still be closed off. Um, folks would still be in, indentured to uh, the corporation, the evils of corporate colonialism um, would still persist to, I, I suppose, a slightly greater degree um, than they are there right now, even though the fallout from that just doesn't go away uh, and, and things. Um, and De Beers, as I mentioned, it, it still has a stranglehold on the area, so it's it's really hard to be hopeful. Um So, I I mean, here's an example, I suppose. So, De Beers has recently launched an environmental division. And so, uh, the environmental division of De Beers is responsible, quote-unquote, for rehabilitating um, the natural environment that has been, you know, so terribly destroyed by the corporation, you know, for, you know, the last, say, 100 years, and so now they're taking on the responsibility to restore the, uh, the, the environment. And um, they, they call their reports to their, their shareholders uh, about the environmental restoration building forever reports. Um, but such reports are scrutinized typically only by De Beers shareholders. And so I, inv- I, I interviewed one of the environmental managers um, uh, for De Beers, and he's saying these efforts at restoration are costing billions of dollars or South African rand that could be pumped into the town and given to the residents in different ways, but it isn't. Um, and it's a complete waste of money uh, because the land is so thoroughly ravaged that it can't be returned. Um and then when De Beers has been, uh, that's been presented to De Beers, they claim their environmental division actually perpetu- perpetuates this, this incredibly unscientific rhetoric that the land they disturbed since 1925, for instance, has been so thoroughly ravaged that it's somehow magically reverted to what they call a pure state and pure Namaqualand land territory. Um, And so here's why I'm a little bit hopeless, I guess. Um, Recently, some indigenous uh, populations in the area, the the Khoisan um, people who were uh, farmers traditionally, um, wanted to begin farming what used to be De Beers' property and, uh, um, you know, uh, diamond mine, um, like actual diamond mine. They wanted to start growing things there. Um, But De Beers has actually banned them um, from doing that uh, because then they can't portray this image to the public that they're the ones who are environmentally responsible and spending all of this money uh, to do this. And they actually went so far as to attack the the indigenous population um, for uh, the overgrazing of their farm animals. Um, De Beer says your farm animals grazing on plants uh, on our old diamond mine um, is going to hurt the environment more than the diamond mining itself. It's 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 preposterous, and wow. so and so they still have a stranglehold on the region and are still you know preventing um, the indigenous populations from reclaiming it.
0: Wow, that is quite. A story. And you're right, it doesn't make one feel especially, especially hopeful. Mm -hmm. So before we wrap up, you know, this is an animal studies podcast. So I want to make sure I, I come back around to the pigeons. And one of the things I loved about the book was, while the backbone is really this story of what's happening along the Diamond Coast in South Africa, and how pigeons are playing a role there you also weave in all these other stories from history and myth um about pigeons and the role they've played in our imagination and i was just curious what you learned about sort of the human relationship with pigeons throughout history if there's some through line there
1: yeah we we should end on a a a, a more hopeful beautiful note um i um I mean, first of all, I've, I've always been bird obsessed, but I, I've never really until um, working on this book um, had the time, frankly, to devote that obsession to like real bird watching uh, or interrogation into, you know, human bird relations across time, culture, region and, and things. Um, and, and, and so I, I always felt um, like there were two things that, that were lying in my future, serious bird watching and and painting watercolors, um, <laughs> and I feel as if uh, this writing this book just kind of accelerated um, the uh, uh, my desire to become like a serious bird watcher, and I've really started started doing that. Um, but yeah, I've I found that pigeons that we now just kind of um, dismiss um, due to the fact that they're common due to the fact that, uh, oh, they, uh, you know, they make a mess on our city streets. Um, they're colloquially known in New York City as rats with wings um, and things. And so we kind of like strip them of their beauty, but they're just um, stunning animals and um, incredibly brilliant animals. So, for instance, um, in experiments, pigeons have demonstrated the ability to recognize all 26 letters of the English alphabet. Um wow. pigeons pigeons like crows have facial recognition. um so they recognize the faces, let's say, of people who have been kind to them. Um they also recognize the faces of past abusers, uh perhaps um, in uh, I, I mean they they show up in in so many of our our myths. um the the pigeon uh, really there's there's really no difference. When you're talking about like binomial nomenclature and and you know just the scientific classification of the pigeon between a pigeon and a dove, and um, when we think of a dove, we think of of love, we think of purity, we think of of holiness. uh, In a way, Um, I mean, in in many of our myths, the pigeon is the harbinger of spring and regrowth and purity and peace. It's it's an object of perfection and beauty and our own wistfulness. Uh, The, the ancient Greeks, for instance, um, named their prettiest islands, uh, Peristera. um, And I might be mispronouncing that, so forgive me, but, um, and Peristera is the female form of pigeon. So the prettiest of the Greek isles were um, originally named by the ancient Greeks after the pigeon um in Hebrew the word yauna, uh which means pigeon or dove, refers to like this holy warmth generated by the friction of bodies during an act of mating and things. It's it's wow. it's just so beautiful. So um historically and mythologically we've revered the pigeon and it's it's only more recently that we have um associated um, this kind of perceived ubiquity, this the fact that they're commonplace um, with a lack of beauty. Just because they're common, we've decided to strip them of, of their beauty in our, our contemporary cultural narratives and and part of this book wants to um, restore that beauty to the pigeon and to basically italicize the fact that um, what is common, Uh, Like, commonality um, and ubiquity and beauty are not and should not be mutually exclusive.
0: (laughs) So is it safe to say you look at pigeons a bit differently now?
1: Every time I, still every time I see one, my heart leaps. Um, So you might imagine my heart is leaping a lot these days. Um, (laughs) it's one of the few things that's, that's, I mean, even brought me a brief burst of joy, uh, you know, this, this past year. So, um, so yeah.
0: That is a nice hopeful note to, to wrap up on. Um, I just want to ask you before you go what you're working on now and what's, what's next for you. If, if there's anything you can share with us.
1: Um, yeah. So, uh, as as I mentioned, um, so I mean a lot of my days now are, are, are spent uh, cobbling together um, some of the outtakes from the pigeon book um, into standalone essays. Um, these were uh, meditations on birds and pigeons that didn't necessarily have to do with uh, the story I was telling in this book, um, but there's still there's still so much more to say about them. So um, I've been working on on some of those essays too. Um, and uh, I'm working on, um, I've begun a, a, a new project. Um, so you mentioned when you were talking about some of my previous books, um, a couple books ago, I, I wrote about the giant squid. And so I guess I've found that I've, I'm, I'm interested in uh, animals um, that tend to inhabit the ocean and animals that inhabit the sky. Uh, maybe one day I'll come back to earth. But uh, (laughs) I'm I'm starting to work on uh, this book, which began with an inquiry into people who were obsessed enough to build their own submersibles, their own DIY submarines, um, Hmm. because they had an obsession with sinking to depth, uh, and oftentimes to their own demise. A lot of people drowned that way. Um, and so I was just curious about this drive of certain people to build their own DIY submersibles and sink. Um, I, I guess I'm obsessed with obsessives. And so I latched onto that obsession and it's, it's kind of, um, it's about that, but now it's, it's, as I'm writing this book, it's also in part about a lot of um, uh, our engagements with various mythological sea creatures uh, too, mm. um, so it's about the compulsion to sink to depth, but, but it's also about sea monsters um, and the role of the sea monster um, in various mythologies, in literature, in art, in religion, and, and so on. So I'm, I'm working on that a bit, too.
0: Well, that sounds fascinating. We'll We'll have to keep an eye out for it. And congratulations on this book. It's just fascinating. And I encourage everyone to go pick up a copy of Flight of the Diamond Smugglers. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great chatting with
1: you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Emily.